Uh, this is part two in our four-part four part series on spiritual warfare, the Christian at war, out of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. So if you'd like to turn there, that's where we're going to be this morning. I just want to remind folks from last week, I uh, divided this passage up into three parts, the Christian's enemy, verses 10, 11, and 12, the Christian's armor, 13 through 17, and then 18, 19, and 20, I call the Christian's tactic, which is going to focus on prayer. It's going to focus on prayer. But I'm spending two Sundays in point number one, the Christian's enemy talking about the devil. And I so I want you to know this passage is not for the faint in heart. It is for those who are in Christ. It's for those who are blessed. It is for those who are in love with the majesty and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Above all else, they desire to magnify Him. They want to follow Him. They want to follow Him in all their ways. They're in love with Him, and He is their priority. I mean, what Christian doesn't want to be united in harmony with Christ and in harmony and unity with the body of Christ? What Christian doesn't want to imitate the love of God? What does Christian does not want to honor Christ in their home? To all this we say what? Amen and amen. Till now, until verse 10 of chapter 6, we have been catapulted upward into the practicability and the piety and gospel living. But now Paul brings us down to earth. We've been cut up here in the clouds of what it's like to have Christ in our homes. What it's like to have Christ at work and to represent Him at work. What it's like to have him in our bodies and to, and to put off and to put on. And we've been up here in this layer of cloud called sanctification. But we forget how deep and how, how troublesome this cloud could be. And he brings us right back down and, and reminds us of the opposition that we face each and every day. He reminds us that with every desire to fall, to follow Christ, is this underlying opposition that we cannot see. Let me say that again. With every desire you have to follow Christ, to make Him known, to follow after Him, and to be like Him, is underneath all those wonderful, God-given, Holy Spirit-driven desires, is this, what I want to say, this opposition. An opposition that comes from the slander, the devil himself, who has, by the way, an ally inside of us called the flesh, who has designed the world in such a way that appeals to the flesh to keep us from doing the very thing that we would love to do, and that is to honor Christ. So if nothing else, verses 10 through 20, Paul brings us back down to reality. And so let's just read together verses 10, 11, 12. You stand with me. We'll read together 10, 11, and 12, and ask for God's blessing, and we'll get started with our message this morning. Verse 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the grace of in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Why? For this reason, verse 12. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that your word describes for us here, particularly in verse 12, 
that there are beings, that there are personalities, that there are fallen angels who are against us walking in Christ, who are against us even coming to Christ, magnifying Christ. As we learned last week, God, they hate us because they hate you, they hate all that are in you. So, Father, each one in this room is here this morning because we desire to honor Christ with our lives. They're now his lives. So longer we who live with Christ who lives in us. The enemy is opposed to those who you justify, to those who you redeem. And those redeemed want to live now, now for Christ. We don't want to wait till we get to heaven. We have that desire, this unquenchable, strong desire to follow after and pursue Christ and to make him known. But every step of the way, Paul reminds us this morning that we struggle, that we are in hand-to-hand combat with foes, with an enemy that is unseen and that is, un- and that is relentless. And he hates for the church to magnify its head, the Lord Jesus. So God, help us to understand the enemy and help us, therefore, next week to understand what it means to put on the armor of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray for his glory. We ask these things. Amen and amen. You may be seated. I want you to notice, first off, Paul uses the word finally. Look at verse 10. Finally. Finally. That's not in, here's the last item of thought before I wrap up the letter. This is not uh, a, a conclusion statement, but it's more henceforth. For the remainder of the time I have with you, I want to write to you about something. I want to remind you of the opposition that you're going to face because you desire to live for Christ. Because you desire to live out the gospel, you need to know something. You're going to be, you're going to face opposition every step of the way. It's an unseen opposition, but it's very cunning and very deceptive. And notice where he says, finally, what? Be strong. In other words, if wives want to be subject to their husbands, for the honor of Christ, if husbands want to love their wives for the honor of Christ, if we want our, to raise up our children the admonition of the Lord, as employees or employers, we want to magnify Christ at work, if we want to magnify Christ morally by putting off the old and putting on the new, if we want to magnify Christ by, by, by pursuing unity in the body of Christ, we've got to know this, it will not happen unless we are strong. Unless we're strong. And that's why he says, finally, You need to understand something here. As Paul's wrapping up this letter, you need to be strong because every step of the way, for every desire that you have to honor Christ, there's an underlying opposition that faces you. And so you need to be what? Finally, be strong. Be strong. Before he explains what that means, by putting on the armor, he tells us who the enemy is at the end of verse 11 and in verse 12. the end of verse 11, it means against the schemes of the devil. Here's your opposition right there. He's scheming. He's tricky. He's deceptive. He's manipulative. Before he explains what the armor is, he first explains the enemy, the slander himself known as the devil. Now, last week we looked at his character and his person, okay? We looked at his person and character, excuse me, of the devil. So let's just do a quick review before we go into our passage this morning, these couple of verses. Number one, he was a created being, or is a created being. 
He's alive, okay? He's a created being. We learn from Ezekiel that he was a fallen angel. He was one of the most powerful angels who fell. But yet he is not God. We also learn he's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He's not everywhere present like God is. So he doesn't have the attributes of God. Okay? So let's not hold him up as a God or God. He's not. He loves for that, by the way. He wants to be known as being a God. Okay? He, of all the egos in the universe, he's got the biggest. But we have it too. So he appeals to our ego, doesn't he? But he's, he knows how to do it because he's got the biggest one of them all. We see that in the garden, don't we? We, we read, read about that in Ezekiel last week. But notice how he's characterized here. Schemes of the devil. He's a schemer. He's one who deceives. He organizes ways to deceive people. He thinks about it. He thinks it through. And I want to, here's A and here's Z. He will do whatever he can to get people to Z. So he'll produce a B, C, D, E, F, G. And he doesn't care how long it takes as long as he drags you to Z. The further away from Christ himself is the idea here. So he organizes ways to deceive, to trick. The word means slander, mudslinger, defamer. He's crafty. He plots. And he's so good at it, 2 Corinthians 10, Paul calls him an angel of light. That tells us how good he is at it. He's so good at it, he looks like he's right. He looks like he's saying, telling the truth. That's how good he is at what he does. And it all flows from his character. He's so good he fears as an angel of light. We also learn, according to Jesus in John 8, 44, that he is called a murderer and a liar. He loves murder. He loves to destroy things. No wonder such horrific incidents happen, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Beheadings. Mass murders. Mass suicides. Mass everything. Why? Because... No, Satan's subjects, the children of God, we learn about in Ephesians 2, of whom we were all like, by the way, have the capacity to what? Do the devil's bidding. Kind of like father, like son. Really. So when horrific things happen in our world, like in Florida, we as Christians look at it from the viewpoint of God's word, and we understand who Satan is. We understand that he controls things around here. He's a prince of power of the air. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2, just three chapters earlier. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince power of the air. That's the Satan himself, the devil. According to uh, uh, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Those who blindly follow after him will at times do horrific things like him. There's the answer. Why do people do such horrific things like that? There it is. And they blindly do it. They don't know they're doing it. And that's part of the trickery of it, isn't it? You don't know that they're walking and following in the schemes of the evil one. That's called the sinfulness of sin. Sin is so powerful and strong. We as Christians should never underestimate the power of sin. That it's so tricky. And it's not just because of the sin nature that is there in every one of us. Now, now we've been redeemed. Spirit indwells us. Well, I'm talking about the unbeliever. 
who still has that wretchedness, that wretched unbelief in them. They don't have the dwelling of the Spirit. They don't have the mind of Christ. They don't have the capacity, therefore, to please God. They, they are dead in their sins, and they're walking the course of this world that Satan has designed to keep them so blinded. And in that blindedness, sometimes they do horrific things. Like murder. It's easy to lie. We also learned last week that the devil has two allies, the world and the flesh. Okay? He, okay? We learned that the flesh is in love with the world. Okay? Because even as Christians now, even though we have now, I'm changing context from an unbeliever to a believer, okay? I'm changing context. Now with us, we have the indwelling of the Spirit. We have been given the mind of Christ. We do have that capacity now to please God. And we want to. But as Paul realized in Romans chapter 7, I still, I still find in me this principle that sin still, still dwells in me. And that's why I oftentimes don't find myself doing what I want to do. That is, please God, I sin instead. A wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death as long as I'm in this body? You get the picture. That's where I'm at with this. And so the devil organizes a world system whereby it appeals to the flesh in every one of us. Not just appeals to the flesh of the unbeliever to keep them blinded, of the unbeliever, but to, to appeal to the flesh in the believer to trip us up, to devour us, to ruin our witness to Christ. That's why he hates the church. Because the church is the only witness to Christ on earth. And if he can destroy us, if he can sever our relationship, if he can disunify us, if he can create a great chasm of immorality so that we blend in with the world, he ruins the testimony of Christ, and that is exactly what he's after. He accomplishes this by appealing to man's pride and lust through both secular and religious means. Think of it this way. How does he do it? How does he appeal to, to, to the flesh by both secular and religious means? means. By secular, I mean worldliness. And let me read this definition. Referring to a kingdom by which the ruler and its people are lost in sin and wholly at odds with anything that pleases God. Everything that man has created somehow gets perverted. Whether it's a television, a laptop, or a cell phone. No matter how advanced we become in technology, Somehow, some way, we figure out a way to pervert it. I'm not saying that the inventors initially started that way with evil in mind. They, they didn't. But because they're sinners, it naturally goes that direction, doesn't it? For our world or our culture is saturated with pornography. Right? It's all over the place. And I can go on and on and on. But also, there are other ways that he works through the secular. And that's by watering down sin in the eyes of the world. It's really not that bad. You Christians take, take, take things to the extreme. Sinfulness is not all that bad. We're not all that bad. Sinners aren't all that bad. There's, good, there's, there's enough good in us. There's a lot of good in us. All we need to do is some good things. And they can, after time, outweigh the bad things. And certainly that's going to get God's attention. That's how they think. And it results into religions like the Roman Catholic Church and others as well. Satan loves to preoccupy the world with self. 
telling the world lies such as, he can live his best life now. What does that do? That makes me focus on now. Where's that in Scripture? As the Puritans say, we are to live with one foot on earth and one foot in heaven. Right? This is my home. Bible calls us ambassadors for Christ. We are foreigners in this land. We shouldn't be focused on being citizens of the United States nearly as much as being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's the danger of politics. It's very dangerous in that it can get our minds swallowed up in the here and now and not on the kingdom to come. What about, you've heard these these, uh, phrases like this, accomplish anything you set your minds to. You can accomplish anything you set your mind to. How many times have you heard of that one? I scratch my head and go, really? As if I'm my own God? Is it true? Or is it a level of truth in there and deceptive, but not all true? We're talking about the cunningness of the evil one. Deceiving people into thinking they can accomplish anything they set their minds to. All you need to do is, here's another one, have faith in yourselves. Have faith in yourself. Really? Do we teach our children? No. I don't want faith in myself. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? It's desperately it's sick. Who can, uh, that tells me, don't trust yourself. Don't have faith in yourself. Oh, it's all over the place. These sayings and others, we want to make sure I didn't miss any. Oh, that Satan sort of designs this world uh, to the point of stroking man's ego by telling him these lies. Or placing before him this wealth or these positions to say that you deserve the next position more than this person does. You deserve this amount of money, not what you got right now. Don't be content until you have this over here. But Paul comes along and says, I've learned to be content at all times with all things, whether being poor or rich. I've learned the secret to be content. You know what that secret is for the Christian? It's not a secret because it's knowing Jesus Christ. I'm content on good days and bad days. We learn to be content whether things are going well or things are down south. What is the secret to that contentment? It is knowing Jesus Christ and crucified. It's knowing that God is sovereignly in control. It's knowing that I am redeemed and loved with an infinite, eternal, sovereign love. There's also religious means by which Satan kind of works through the world. It's called works-based religions. It really appeals to the ego. It appeals to the ego. Just enough to make man think that he can do something about his salvation. Satan would love to plant a seed in every sinner that they can have 10% to do with their salvation. But grace teaches us you have 0% to do with your salvation. It's all of God. Satan will love to plant a seed of 1% in your mind, only to get it to 5 and 10 and 15 down the road. So that you less and less and less and less and less trust in Christ. That's why he uses men to create and deceive men in giving them visions of the creation of Islam and Jehovah Witness and Mormonism. I could go on and on, but in short, here, I want to summarize last week by saying this. The world that was created to reflect the glory of God now lives in rebellion to the Lord of glory. 
the world that was created back in Genesis 1 and 2 to reflect the glory of God is now in rebellion of the Lord of glory. They now desire their own glory. That's what the fall is all about. That's what sin is all about, the glory of man instead of the glory of God. The glory of the creature instead of the glory of the creator. From this point on, I can summarize that. All I want to do this morning is concentrate on our text, our verses 10, 11, and 12. And we're going to kind of walk through those verses for a couple of minutes, and then we're going to try to apply them in a couple of different ways. Okay? Let's start with verse 10. First word again, finally. Finally, he is writing to believers. Be strong in the Lord. That's how we know he's writing to believers, in reference to the Lord. Be strong in reference to him. So we know he's talking about those who have been blessed, those who are in Christ. He's writing to believers. And he tells them, be strong. Be strong in the strength of his might. That is Christ's might. Desire to live in the power of the resurrection. The power to honor Christ in thick and thin. In good times and bad times. Christ honored the Father as he walked to Golgotha. He honored the Father as they crammed those crowns on his head. He was focused on his Father's will, not on getting out of the situation, because he was focused on you. The Father says, I'm sending you down there not to be served, but to serve, to give you life a ransom for many. To seek and to save that which was lost, that is us, folks. That is you and I. So Paul said, be strong. In the strength of Christ's might, seek the Lord's strength. It's to say, put on his armor. Look at verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Now he'll pick that armor up in verse 13. But from that point on into verse 12, he's now just reminding us of the enemy, the opposition. In other words, get this. Our fight is not against our neighbors. It's not against that unbeliever that gives us a hard time. That's not who we're fighting. We're not fighting people. Can you say that? We are not fighting people. We are fighting the enemy who blinds those poor folks, of which I was one at one time. Ephesians 2, 3. But God, but God. They need to hear, but God. Not how good they are, but God. How good he is. It's not people, it's the devil. Put on the full armor of God so that, here's the purpose statement, you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, not the schemes of people. Evolution. Big Bang Theory. I really believe, though it has come from the mouth of men, it was ultimately given to them by the evil one. The seeds planted. The first seed is, really is there a God? Maybe there's not. But then how do we get here? How can we explain this, what we see around us? How can I explain the mountains? How can I explain the oceans? How can I explain earthquakes? How can I explain the stars? How can I... And so let's try to think. And how we can explain the existence of creation without a creator. You can see that seed was planted well before they got to that point. The seed was planted years before they got to the Big Bang Theory. And if you think about it, really? That's your answer to this? <laughs> That's your answer to what you see. But we're not fighting them, are we? We're not fighting a Stephen Hawkins. 
He's that smart guy, they say. No. Guess what? He falls under Ephesians 2, blinded. He falls under the category of 2 Corinthians 4.4. He's blinded by the evil one. That poor soul. You should have pity on him. Not get, I, I t- don't you tend to look at people that are just ranking their city, you know, I get mad at them? This is really tempers that, doesn't it? All of a sudden, it turns me into Jesus a little bit because they want to have pity on their souls and I want to have mercy on them. They're not as powerful as they think they are. Satan wants them to think that they're really powerful and really smart, but in the end, it's only because he's blinded them. He's tricked them into thinking that. Right? Let's go on. Rulers, powers. What does that mean? Verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's against the enemy. It's against the devil. But in contrary to that, contrary to people, it's against rulers, powers, world forces. Now, does that mean there's various ranks of evil in the spirit of darkness world in that realm? Or not? I don't know. I'm not going to say that. I really don't have anything there that says that. But they are personal agents, demons, the rulers, the powers. One of your, some translations say principalities or powers. It refers to their, their, the power they have to deceive because they follow themselves after the devil. So there's, there's rulers and there's powers. There's principalities that are out there that we do not see that, that, that are driving and formulating and, and working into this world system an anti-Christ spirit and mindset, right? It's there. The Bible's saying it. This is, this, is, this is one of those, I'm going to believe it because the Bible says it, but I surely don't see it, right? Right? But Paul's telling us here, wait a minute, you got to understand something. There's something far bigger than you even know about going on that opposes you because you love Jesus. And he gives us a little description of it. And here he's focusing on the enemy himself. The next phrase gives us a little more insight. The world forces refers to the scope of the opposition, the scope of the power. It, it's, it's worldwide. It's worldwide. They don't, you know, they're all over the place, so to speak. This explains how the devil could offer Jesus the kingdom of this world back in Matthew chapter 4. I want you to look at this, just real quick. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. You see that? And their glory. And he said to him, all these things, all these kingdoms of this world, I will give you if you fall down and worship me. We know why he could offer that to Jesus. Because of all the forces and principalities, he had it under control. And of course, Jesus' response, get out of here, verse 10. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. We'll visit that in a few minutes. Another phrase is darkness. It's a very significant term back in our main verse. In verse 12, the world forces of this darkness. Darkness, the power of darkness, the sole purpose of darkness is to diminish the light. Think of it that way. Darkness, its purpose, it has a purpose, is to diminish the light. Power is neutral. The power of darkness is not. It has a goal, it has a purpose. It wants to diminish light, most of all, without question the light of Christ himself. Hence the church, you and I. The devil and his cohorts are against the light of Christ. 
There are spirits, uh, spirits, agents of evil who exist. Also, notice where it says heavenly places. We know there's Job chapter 1, 6, and 7, where, where Job was kind of traveling, uh, and then he got to the presence of God. So he has access. We learned that in Job chapter 1. Isn't that something? The sole purpose is to quench the light of Christ. In other words, these rulers, these powers, these supernatural agencies, these demons, these forces of darkness are everywhere. That means deception is everywhere, lies is everywhere, scheming is everywhere, trickery is everywhere. They give visions and dreams that, that, that create false religions and false thinking and false teaching, right? That's how he works. He, and he loves to, he, he treats the world as a sponge. And take water, the liquid, it's all this false teaching and false... He just wants to saturate the world, that sponge, with all this falseness, with all this trickery. So he creates and recreates and twists and distorts over and over and over again, not just outside the church, but even inside the church. How cunning this evil one is. Now, this obviously makes more sense, or helps us to make more sense, out of Second Corinthians chapter 10, when we read this. For though we walk in the flesh, this is verse 3 of chapter 10, for though they walk in the flesh, walk in these bodies, we walk in the physical, we do not war according to the flesh. We're not going to go home and pick up a gun and shoot somebody because of their false teaching. That's pretty easy, isn't it? Okay. Verse 4, why? For this reason, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not man-made. They're not human. But divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What do you mean by that? What fortresses? Verse 5, listen. For we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that exalts itself against who God is. Verse 5. Did you get that? We are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which we'll talk about later, Paul will, and that's the only offensive weapon we have against all the trickery, the scheming, and the false teaching, and the false religions, that we have as Christians to wield against the evil one. And all those things are meant to be raised up against the true knowledge of God. And that's why we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Satan wants to blind the unbelieving world because he wants them to obey him. And he wants to get after and destroy the Christian by the same way, through the same methods, actually. And Satan basically has a two-pronged approach. The first is doctrinal, the second is moral. Now I'm talking just the church. Listen to this. Listen to this. The devil has a two-pronged approach. Prong number one is a doctrinal approach. The development of false gospels. Aberrations, deviations. Such as easy believism, which is addressed in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What? If it's all of grace, shall we continue to sin that grace might abound? No way. That's addressing what we call today this easy believism gospel where all I need to do is walk down the aisle, ask Jesus into my heart, which, by the way, where is that in Scripture? It is not. Okay? I so what people say, but it's not there. What it is being born again. To be saved is to be made alive. Is to be a new creature in Christ with a new heart, a new disposition, a new capacity that says, I want to follow Jesus because he died for me. 
And I want to turn from my sins. I want to turn from this old lifestyle. And I want a new one. And that's going to be my trajectory till I get to heaven. Amen? Amen? That's what it means to be in Christ. Not this easy stuff is to where I go down the aisle, I make a profession of faith, and, and, and I go my way, and after a couple weeks and months, I'm right back to where I was, and there's no change in my life whatsoever, as if the Spirit never dwelled in me, well, most likely He doesn't. At that point. Paul deals with it in Romans 6.1. Or legalism. Swing the pendulum the other direction. Paul deals with it in Galatians chapter 1, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Listen to this. This is, it is tough language here. I'm amazed. Talking to Christians. Oh, oh, he's talking to Christians in all these contexts. He's not talking to the world out there. He's like going to Grace Community Church or going to any local church and saying, hey, here, here's what we've got to be aware of. I'm amazed the church of Galatia. I'm amazed that you are so quickly discerning him, that is Christ, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, a deviation, a different one. It looked similar, but it was different. Judaizers were going around saying, yeah, 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 Jesus is a way. You know, you, Jesus, yes, but you also got to get circumcised. You also have to do this and that. Roman Catholicism is nothing but a Gentile version of Jewish Judaism. Who it is? It's works-based religion, and it strokes my ego. Because that way I got 10% part investment in my salvation. I said, no, no, no. You got zero. I've put all the investment in. I gave my son. He shed his blood. It's going to be his righteousness that I close you with. I'm doing 100% of this. Get, get your hand off of it. Humbly come to the foot of the cross. Trust in my son. Follow after him. Amen? Amen. Well, we're warned about this in Galatians, the legalism that is there. He goes on to say, which is really not another gospel, verse 7. Now, there's two people saying there's another one out there, there's another one, but there's really only one. You see what Paul's thinking there. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There's the word distortions. That's where I got it from earlier. But even if we or an angel from heaven, here's how powerful. Here's Paul driving the point home. That Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father, no one comes to me. He's driving it home right here. Even if we, me or my associates of the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. In the Greek, that simply means cast into hell. Paul could, there's no blunter language than what he uses here in the Greek. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Anathema. For am I now seeking the favor of men? You see, usually people who, who preach a, a works-based religion are out there to stroke men's ego and to stroke their own. So they get people to follow after them. But as we learn, if you want to go ahead and turn to, I think it's, it's 1 Timothy 4. Satan uses men to do this. And he does. Listen to this. I'm in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. How? By paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. There it is. Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, how do the demons work? How do these evil spirits that are out there that we do not see, how they work? What's the means by which they do their bidding? 
verse 2. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, men and women. That's how they do it. They use human beings to do their bidding. You gotta get over that. That's how they operate. And he explains more particularly what was going on at that time. Men who are, listen, are seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron. You got that picture. This, this false teaching, this false gospel has been branded on their conscience so that they are up there like I am right now, absolutely convinced that they're right. But here's the problem. I'm asking you to measure up with the Word of God, what I say. What they say does not measure up to the Word of God. Amen? This is always our foundation. This is the lifeblood of the church. When you, If someone was to cut us open, as Spurgeon, I think it was him, would say, we bleed, bleed, bibline, Bible. That's what you get out of me, if you cut me, so to speak. Powerful, powerful thinking and words. So Satan attacks the truth by means of false teachings from without, with false religions, and like we just spent the last five minutes, from within. But he also attacks us morally, and we get that from Romans 7. We get that from other passages of Scripture, and we know that. Not only does he like to attack the doctrine of justification by faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone, not only does he like to attack the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ, he attacks the Trinity, like Jehovah's Witnesses do. Or attack the sinfulness of man. Why attack the sinfulness of man? Why do we protect total depravity? That we are totally, thoroughly sinners. Why? Because once you begin to water that down, you begin to obscure the pathway to Christ. That's why. As soon as we think men are going to be okay, Jesus is not nearly as necessary. And we're less prone to go to him. Amen? That's why. Let me give you a few examples of how this is done. And we'll close after that. Genesis chapter 3. So I want to show you Satan's scheming using two illustrations in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, the fall, if you'd like to turn there for a moment. More in detail of how he works this out. How he gets to us doctrinally, but also how he gets to us morally to get us to, into moral failure. So that we're not conduits through which Christ will work. Right? To, to, to kind of uh, damage the testimony and the witness of the church. And he does that by attacking us doctrinally from within and morally as well. Okay? Genesis chapter 3, first couple of verses. The Satan's scheme in the Garden of Eden was fourfold. It was fourfold. There was war going on there. There's opposition right here. Right off the bat, Genesis 3. That's spiritual warfare. So let's see how the enemy's operating here in this scene. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. There's that word crafty. Okay? which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The first thing that Satan does is puts God's command in negative light. What a burden. In other words, God, the devil, excuse me, the devil wants us to think that all of God's commands are negative and a burden and that they're not for our good. Okay. Second, he impugns God's motives and character by attacking God's word. Look at 4 and 5. The servant said to the woman, you surely will not die. God says you're going to die. He said, no, no, no. God's speaking in hyperbole. 
How many people today treat hell as if it's nothing but hyperbole? It's not a real place. And by the way, it's not eternal. It's just a hyperbole. No! It's a real place. It's always presented as a real place. A real location. Even the end of Revelation, Satan will be cast there. It's a real place. Because he's a real person. But you can see this. He goes from putting God's commands in a negative light to imputing God's motive and character by attacking the word of God. Number three... He said to man, you can be like God. He appealed to man or to woman's pride. In verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Don't you want to know what it's like to know good and evil? You can handle it. That's what Satan was telling her. You can handle it. After God can handle it, why can't you handle it? Wow. How many times has that thought stung a young person? You can handle going into that bar. You can handle going into that store. You can handle doing this or that. Or an old person. Right? The saint wants us to think that I can handle it. When the reality is, no, you can't. You can handle going to the beach. No, you can't. You know where I'm going with that. Four. Verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. He made sin look good. Number four. So Satan does. He makes it look good. No wonder John later on, in 1 John chapter 2, comes along and says, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. My flesh says, I deserve it. The flesh says, it looks good. And the flesh also says, by the way, it will feel good. Why not? You see, Satan knows that's there in us. He appeals to it over and over and over again. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. One more illustration here. And obviously this is the temptation of Jesus. That's the scene. Talk about real warfare going on here. Satan absolutely trying to attack Christ here appealing to his humanity to get him to fall because he did not want him to redeem anyone, to redeem mankind. He knew the Father's will and he wanted to prevent the Son from, from accomplishing the Father's will, accomplishing our salvation, actually. And so here the war takes center stage in the Incarnation in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. After Jesus, for 40 days, 40 nights without food, became hungry. He, obviously the body just wore out. Right? And when the body wears out, temptations what? Come to the skin stronger than ever. It's one reason why I should keep my body in somewhat healthy, half decent shape. Because when I get tired, I'm, I'm prone to sin easier. Does that make sense? Anyway, just food for thought there. I wouldn't even have noticed. That was my little kind of side thinking during the week. That was for me. Anyway, you want. Alright, Matthew 4. Satan was at war with Christ. This war took center stage in verses 1 through 11. Here are a couple of things. Number one, verses three through four, Satan appealed to Jesus' independence. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, because of who you are, who you are, apart from the Father, because of who you are, command that these stones become bread. I know that you in and of yourself can command these stones to become bread, and they will, and you will eat. And you'll be okay then. But he said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
So number one, he appealed to his independence. Number two, indulgence, verses 5, 6, and 7. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. Use the power of your angels to help you. Indulge yourself in your angels. I know they'll come to your aid. They'll prevent you from being smacked down on the earth, so to speak. So number one, I'm going to try to get at you by appealing to your independence. Number two, by getting you to indulge and to use the powers at your hand. Your angels in particular. We look at 8, 9, and 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, which Satan legitimately offered because we learned earlier that he is the prince and power of the air and those kingdoms. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you thought, what gall? You see, that Satan saying that I will give you, Jesus. And if he had the gall to say it to Jesus, he'll have the gall to say it to anybody, won't he? All you got to do is one simple little thing. Just do it for one second. Just take that one knee and put it down real quick for him. Go, get out of here, Jesus says. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I love verse 11. What happened next? The devil left. The devil listened. The devil obeyed the king of kings in verse 11. He tempted Jesus to turn away from the word of God, the will of God, and the will of his father and the cross. Just like he offered glory to Eve in the garden, he's offering glory to Christ. But it's never his to offer. It's only God's to give. That's the deceptiveness of Satan himself. And Christ would have nothing to do with it. You see, Satan was offering glory to Christ without the cross and apart from his father. And Jesus saying, no, I'm going to get glory by way of the cross, and it's going to come from my Father. I'm not going to give it myself. You see that? Satan wants us to think, every human being think that we can give glory to ourselves. And ours is just as filthy rags. There's one more, I'm going to close with this way in which Satan operates today. How much time is it? My goodness. I'm, I'm just having such a good time up here. I forgot what time it is. You need a bigger clock back there? So, I really want to get at this, but the kids are going to walk in there right now. So I'm stopping. And I really want to get to this. We'll get to it next week. 